0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. For Vivian Hsu, it's all about music. She was the first African-American female membership rep at the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, ASCAP, and founded the ASCAP Rhythm and Soul Awards. Vivian's resume also includes Polygram Records, where she was director of A&R, vice president of A&R at Epic Records, and head of Urban at 550 Sony Music. Then there's Time Zone International, Vivian's foray into the world of entrepreneurship. It's the first and only U.S.-based African-American-owned company offering international marketing and promotion, touring, licensing, and distribution services for recording artists including Lil Wayne, Tony Braxton, Jay-Z, India Ari, B.B. Winans. Corporate clients include McDonald's, Red Bull, and Sony Music. Oh, there's more! Vivian and her music director-producer husband Ray are co-owners of Chew Entertainment, a premier event production company. Some of their clients the Apollo Theater, National Urban League, Jackie Robinson Foundation. Speaking of foundation, Vivian and Ray's Power to Inspire and their New Jersey-based RVMK recording studio were created to identify and nurture up-and-coming musicians, singers, songwriters, producers, and aspiring music business executives. Impressive. (laughs) Vivian, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Oh,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Can we go back in time? Sure. What role did music play in your life growing up?
1: Uh, Music was everywhere. I grew up in the church, Mm -hmm. so my first influence uh, was gospel music. My mother was the secretary of the church. My father was the head of the trustee board. We went to church eight days a week. (laughs) And when we weren't in church, my mother was home playing Aretha Franklin Mm. and Booker T and the MGs. And like I'm really dating myself. Lou Rawls, but then my brother, who was classically trained, I would be listening to Bach and Beethoven as a pianist. As, as a pianist, uh-huh. uh huh. He was at the Oakland Conservatory of Music. There was a vast age difference between us, so uh-huh. I was a little girl, and he was already in college. Wow! Mm-hmm. So he would come home from college, and you know, I have to listen to concertos, and so I had a real three sixty degree yeah. experience musically.
0: Did you sing? I can't
1: hum in key. Okay.
0: But <laughs> then I get the bed by but, the window. Okay, exactly.
1: <laughs> but um I was able to identify what my career path in music was going to be very early because I became the business manager for our church choir. Oh, So I learned that my gift was being behind the music and that's what I've honed all these years in my career. What
0: exactly did that mean, being the business manager? (laughs) Did your church choir
1: go on tour? Uh, Well, our church choir was the First Baptist Church in Far Rockaway and we were very very well-known choir. That's Queens, for those who don't know. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well-known choir. So my job was to book the bus, make sure that anybody who was under 16 years old, oh yeah, it was 16 not 18, 16 years old had permission from their parents to go, mm-hmm. I had to make sure there was enough food on the bus for the ride and you know what time we were going to get there. So I basically was tour managing and advancing very early in my life and uh, being So were you the that scenes. was your first job or did you do that while you were in
0: school, or how did Oh, how? no, that was
1: mandatory. Like, again, I was a church kid, so uh-huh. you had to pick something to do in the church of service. Oh, okay. So that's what I chose to
0: mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so your church's gospel choir had yes. a rep. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. of course, it was a... Non-paying job. It was tithing. Yeah. Throughout. Right. 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 Yeah. And so then take us on that trajectory after that.
1: Right. So, um, always knew that music was going to play a very, very important part in my life. And I went and did other jobs before I landed working for an amazing woman named Louise West, who is a entertainment attorney. Mm-hmm. And she hired me when I was in my young twenties. And Louise's expertise was in publishing, and that's where I really learned a lot about and Uh how important people's catalogs were and what a performing rights society was. Interestingly I did not go from that job to ASCAP, there was a job in between ah, that okay. where I worked with a musician, but he uh, was also a publisher and had signed writers to his company. So I was I learned how to administer and everything was in preparation to when I got what I quote my first real world job, which means I had a uh, an office and an assistant, and that was at
0: at ASCAP. Any professional recording artist has to be affiliated with ASCAP.
1: Right, or ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. There's three. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how long were you there? I was there for two years, and during my tenure, I had... Uh, realized that ASCAP was honoring pop artists. They had the Pop Awards, they had the Country Awards, and they even had the Brit Awards. Let me interrupt first and ask you what year. Um, 85. Okay. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a second. Yeah, Mm -hmm. 85 to 87. Mm -hmm. And uh, so all of these different genres of music were being acknowledged, and that particular year, Billboard did their year end of the top uh, 100 or whatever the number was. That was that the first? Songwriters. No, it wasn't the first. Okay. But um, I was reading Billboard and I noticed that that year the top three songwriters were Quincy Jones, uh-huh. Stevie Wonder, and of course I'm blank on who the third one was, uh-huh. but it was another African-American male. Mm-hmm. And I took that issue of Billboard to my boss and said, why are we not honoring people who are in urban music when Mm. the top three here are urban writers, caused a lot of controversy with my immediate boss. She told me that if I went higher than her, I would get fired. I decided that I was going to go higher than her. So much for sisterhood, Vivian. Uh Absolutely. And roll the dice because I was really adamant about this and I went to her boss Mm. and then went back to my office and started packing because she had told me that if I did, I was going to get fired. And uh, the gentleman's name was Paul Adler. I'll never forget him. I remember he walked in my office and he said what are you doing and I said I was told that I was crossing the line and he said no you need to sit down you really brought a lot to light we, had, we just did not pay attention wow. and thank you for that and uh, so we established the ASCAP Rhythm and Soul Awards I, was, I think we just did our 30th year and, and you gave um, birth to that. Gave birth to that. But I was hired to go to Polygram before I was actually able to execute it. So I passed the baton on to a colleague of mine mm-hmm. who took over mm-hmm. and a lovely man named Leotis Clyburn who um, who made the awards what they are
0: today. When you look back at that, if I could put words in your mouth, did mm-hmm. you see that as a really
1: massive sin of omission? Sin of omission. I think that sometimes in life, we, you just don't see things until they're brought into focus. Okay. And I think I brought it into focus. I don't think... They so were it was inadvertent on it. own. Yeah, on, absolutely. On but part. you also have to know about the history of ASCAP, and I'm sure I'll get some flack about this. But ASCAP was a society that was established for symphonic composers. And correct composers. If you look at the catalogs of ASCAP and BMI, you'll see that BMI is much heavier in gospel and R&B and and blues, and that's because those writers weren't accepted at ASCAP. ASCAP was very elitist. All of that, of course, has changed, but I think that sort of played a part. I think they just didn't see it. You know, just parenthetically, I have seen I think at least
0: seven times, the HBO documentary on Motown, Mm. the making of um, Hitsville, USA, and to go way back in time then, pre-'80s, you know, for Barry Gordy and what he did. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was so seminal.
1: I tell you, Ray and I, my husband Ray and I, went to, uh, we produced an event in Detroit, and we had the opportunity to take a couple hours to go visit Hitsville. And we learned things that we never knew, like the door was never locked. It was open 24-7 for any aspiring singer-songwriter to come in. But what was really interesting is that Barry Gordy's first, I don't know how many, let's say 10, Mm -hmm. releases didn't have artist photos on them. Because he didn't want the record judged by the color of someone's skin. He wanted those records judged by the quality of the music. You just gave me goosebumps. Okay. And then here's another fun fact is that, you know, you notice that it was Motown. It was Tamla, It was like he had about 15 different labels because at that time— no more, uh, one label could not have more than three songs on the charts. So he just made different labels and put all these <laughs> records out. Oh my God. They all ended up on the chart, but he was within the confines of what the law was at that time. Right, he could only just move amazing so much. Amazing man, amazing Wow. Man. So back to you. Talk about A&R and what exactly that means at Epic and then at Sony. Sure. Um, A&R stands for Artist and Repertoire. And so the responsibility of an A&R person is to identify talent and then to go out and create their project. Now, A&R has changed a little bit since I was in A&R, but it was definitely a um, career that there weren't a lot of women in when oh, I was. Oh, I was just going to ask yeah, you what the hell yeah. was that like? Uh, I- I will tell you what it was like. I was very fortunate because it was a man, a gentleman, by the name of Tony Prindat that identified my talents when I was at ASCAP because I was working very closely with artists who brought me over to Polygram, and he stood next to me and behind me and in front of me and fought all those battles that I was dealing with in conference rooms that were absolutely male-dominated. And when I went on to go to Sony, I also had a... A mentor there by the name of Hank Caldwell who just blocked everything that could have possibly come come to me as a woman. Because not only was I more than not the only woman in the boardroom, I was definitely the only African-American woman in the I was just thinking of that too. With yeah. dreadlocks. So <laughs> it was a lot of layers to me.
0: You know, what's not lost on me is the moxie and the strong sense of self, which I say just about every interview, that's the tie that binds all these amazing women I have
1: made. Where did that come from? My mother, my mother, my mother, my mother, and my godmother were the two women who were most influential in my life, and they were so polar of each other. My mother had a very sh- silent strength. My mother taught me how to be a lady, um, how to listen. So I used a lot of that in my tactics in a boardroom, but then I had a godmother who just didn't couldn't find Give a damn at all. Mm-hmm. And um those two women together are really who I am. I find the balance between the two and what works in the situation that I'm in.
0: Right. That you can mm-hmm. you can sense that out. You know, you know what to do not and it's not being phony, it's being Correct. smart. Correct. So
1: Artist and repertoire. Explain mm-hmm. what that is. At that time, it was it was really going to see artists. You know, that was in the generation of cassettes. Mm-hmm. So we would just get mounds of cassettes. And if I listened to someone and was interested, I would fly to wherever they were to see if they could perform because... It was before the digital age. So most artists that could sing could perform. There wasn't a Ah, lot of things around them. There was no auto-tune. There was nothing that made them sound any different from what they were. So So there was a
0: bigger honesty in a way. Oh,
1: absolutely. absolutely. uh And that's not taking away from the talent that's being cultivated now. It was just different. And um, I would go and meet with them, and they had a manager, or most didn't have agents at that time. Work out a deal, and then my job was now to make the record. And that's where my relationship with publishers and songwriters came in because we literally would go out and find. Ten songs. If the artist was not a songwriter, you know who the producers were going to be, um, what it was going to sound like, the studio, the musicians. I mean, it was it was all encompassing. And then we would then hand it over to the marketing department, where I was blessed again. Going back to these gentlemen that mentored me in both companies, mm-hmm. was that I was allowed to not just hand my baby over for adoption. Huh. I was able to nurture that baby through marketing, through promotion, through artist development. All those kinds of things. And I think that that art has been lost now with modern-day A&R people who pretty much find their talent on social media and who's got Mm. the most hits and the most Mm. followers. And Mm -hmm. Amazing talent has been found that way. I'm not being disrespectful. I just think it's a different process.
0: Were you involved in a specific genre when you were doing that? Yeah.
1: What I think I'm most known for is a genre that I knew very little about. I just sort of fell into it. I had a neighbor who was a big reggae buff, huh. and um, named Yvonne Glenn. And I would go to her house, and I'd be like, oh, you're playing that again? It all sounds the same. <laughs> and she said, no, it doesn't. And I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to educate you. And she let me hear what ska was, what pure uh-huh. reggae was, what, you know, what dance hall was. And, and then I went to Jamaica, and I was listening, and I realized that there was this group that I really liked a lot called Third World. And they already had a big pop record out written by Stevie Wonder called Try Love. And they had circled the world. And Again, an interruption, what year? Yes. um, We're now talking the late 80s. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to see them at a show. And they were just about to sign with a competitor at Warner Brothers. And the A&R person there was a good friend of mine, a male. And I just went up to him after the show. We were both at the show. And I said, you know what? Gloves off. Fair game. I'm signing them (laughs) because I know I can do a better job. And they ended up signing with me, and that was a very important project because it was the first time you ever heard the marriage of reggae and hip-hop together. We did a record called Forbidden Love, Uh and the rapper was uh, Daddy-O, and at that time, radio was not playing rap. How interesting is that? With with that genre being so dominant. So I remember we had to do an edit without the rap and with the rap so that the radio stations could pick which one they wanted to go to. But I had been bitten by... Not only the reggae bug, but the bug of Jamaica, that island, and and, and the beauty of it, and the, mm. and the people, and just when you land, there's music in the air, and um, I they was, live it oh, and absolutely. breathe it. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like it's a religion. I was in Jamaica. I heard this booming voice over and over again on the radio, and I identified who he was, and his name was Shaba Ranks, and uh, he was at the top of a genre of reggae called dancehall. So dancehall to reggae is what rap is to R&B. Okay. So okay. it was the music of the street, the music of the youth, always talking about politics and what was going on in the world at the time, and uh, signed Shabba. And the reason why Shabba was a game changer... Both creatively and professionally, was that I brought a sound to America that America had really never heard of, except for the underground and for the Jamaicans who knew of him extensively. Mm -hmm. And Shaba and I went on to produce two back-to-back Grammys, first dance hall artist to ever do that. Wow. We produced Golden Back-to-back platinum records, traveled the world, and my life with him is what exposed me to the fact that music could be sold outside of the country. And once I identified that and saw the huge numbers of records at the time that were being sold and how artists' careers were being established outside of the walls of New York and L.A., I was going to Paris and Berlin and London and Tokyo and Sydney and and just being in awe of the fact that there was a demand for urban music within the record companies at that time there was a philosophy that urban music did not translate overseas. But it did, because clearly, if you look all the way back in history, you know, Josephine Baker picked up and left and moved exactly. overseas yes, because exactly. she had a career. There are a lot of of African-American artists who were bigger overseas than they were, were here. So that's what opened my eyes to... The void that I had identified of somebody needs to market and promote urban artists overseas. And that's how Time Zone International was born.
0: So there's two ways to describe that. It could be
1: a no-brainer for you or it could make you a visionary. I would like to think I was a visionary. It was very difficult because this was pre-internet. So for me to communicate with people overseas, I had to pick up a phone. If I wanted them to hear a record, I had to physically send it. I had to also, because, you know, now on my iPhone I can work, 24 hours a day from my bed and nobody would know mm-hmm. I would literally have to be at a desk at 5 o'clock in the morning which meant that it was 10 o'clock in London it was 11, I'm sorry, yeah 5 o'clock right because the 5 hour difference right. 10 o'clock in London 6 o'clock in Berlin but then I would go to sleep and then late at night do Asia and Japan. And yeah. So it wasn't, and it was just me. It was me and a literal Rolodex and a word processor and, and, a, and a vision. And for 13 months, I didn't make a paycheck. And had I not had my supportive husband, Ray Chu, to go, you know what? I see your vision. I'm working. We're okay. You just keep doing what you're doing. And I got my first check Two days before Christmas, and I have still yet to cash that check. Oh, that's so great. Because I look at that just to remember, just you can't yeah, forget. Right, just right, right, forget. right. That was such a blessing. So how
0: did he come into the picture?
1: Right. How did Ray come into the picture? Ray and I always knew of each other from in passing and being the music industry. There's a philosophy that there's the us And the thems. And the musicians are the usses. And the people who were in the industry were the thems.
0: Is it considered a small world? Would it be just a matter of time before you and his paths would cross, for example? Well, I
1: mean, the paths cross all the time because he Uh would play and I would be at clubs. There was this one specific club called McKells that used to be up on uh, Columbus Avenue and 97th Street where all of us would go to, all of the New York scene. And so we would intermingle, but there was never really a conversation because these were guys who were gigging and who were, you know, Ray was one of the top session musicians doing three and four sessions a day. What does he play? He plays piano. But he is also very versed in in drums and percussion, and I think he studied a lot of that when he was in school. But it was definitely not like a musician and a label person were ever going to sit down and have dinner. That just didn't happen. And uh, one day, this is now, I'm at Sony. And he had scheduled a meeting for me to listen to some of his music. Your and- reputation preceded you? Uh it was, let me tell you, what was interesting about that is that there's a woman in our life who I call my godmother. Her name is Raina Bundy. And Raina knew both of us. And for years, she would say, hey, Ray, you should check out Vivian. and Hey, Vivian, <laughs> you should check out Ray. And the synergy never really happened. And uh, interest, I have to say that our mothers who have passed away had a lot to do with this because When my mother passed, which was a year before Ray's mother, Raina, spoke to Ray and said, you know, you should call Vivian, and he did, and I remember seeing the call on my call log, but it didn't really resonate, because four months later, my brother had passed, so it was just a really, 1994 was a really
0: tough year,
1: and then the following year, Raina called me and said, you know, Ray's mom passed, you should reach out, which I did, but he was in the middle of handling all of that, so... You go all the way to 1996. The next year, we finally meet up in my office. It was December 13th, Friday the 13th. Yeah. It was a stormy night. <laughs> and um, he came and he played me his music. And he overheard me having a conversation with an intern who was supposed to accompany me to go see an act. And the intern was not well and he canceled. And Ray said, Listen, I'm not trying to, you know, sing. Pushy, was pushy. Yeah. But if you need somebody to go with you, I'll go with you. So that technically was our first date, uh-huh. which was December, and three months later, we were engaged. Are you kidding? Not at all. Well, apparently, as I listen to you, you know what you know. <laughs> you that... know what? I think in love, when you know, you know too. And it was just one of, those, one of those things, and that was 22 years ago.
0: But not for nothing. Separate from, you know, the synergy and knowing the person, you obviously— didn't have five minutes of free time, did you?
1: Particularly since I was juggling being a a mom, too, you know. Oh, that we didn't (laughs) know. Uh I had had my daughter, Lauren, was a teenager and was going to private school in, in Manhattan. And so I had to oversee her academics and her extracurricular activities. Sure, sure. I had elders that I was looking after in my life. And then you have this demanding, you know, job in the industry And it really takes a special person to understand how to manipulate that with you. And that's exactly who Ray is. Ray knew exactly what he was getting into. Never looked at, well, once we get married, she's going to change and all that. Um, I do have the gift of being able to balance my life very, very well. And uh, it's because of the support that he gives me to just be me. Did you ever feel that... Men might be intimidated by you? Men were intimidated by me. I didn't date a lot at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that men saw me up, you know, at 550 Madison and and were apprehensive. I also spoke my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't consider myself a real girly girl, so I, you know, and that was, you know, I, I don't think that I was even looked at like that an awful lot. But the men that I later found out— that quite fancied me, Uh um, just felt like I was unapproachable. Would you have labeled yourself a feminist? Absolutely. So
0: you and Ray literally and figuratively joined forces. Mm -hmm. And
1: to do what? What was the goal? Ray, when we got married, his primary position was as the music director for the legendary Ashford and Simpson. Hello. <laughs> wrote a couple of hit records. Yeah, I, you know. think I, I think I'm familiar yeah, with that name. I'm Every Woman, Ain't No Mountain oh, High. Oh, for enough, God's sake, yes. And Nick and Val were mentors to Ray. Ray started with them when he was 19 years old and was on the road with them and did all their session work for 20 years. So when we got married, Ray was still on the road with Ashford and Simpson, but also doing sessions and writing and producing. So he was in demand. And completely in demand. Mm-hmm and uh one i think one of our biggest obstacles was where were we were going to live because he already lived in new jersey and i was this staunch upper west side girl and we were blending families and so that was i think Did probably, you get your like, shots
0: to cross the hudson?
1: <laughs> well, you if you look very closely you can still see my scratch marks across the george washington bridge. <laughs> I didn't want to make me oh go to Oh my there, god. I didn't want to go to a state with a zip code that began with a zero. I mean i had all of my reasons why and we, we actually landed in a lovely town in Bergen County that we stayed in for 20 years. And that's during that time that I had decided that corporate life was just a little too much for me in two ways. I was in my later 30s at that time, and, the, and hip-hop was just really coming Taking off. And what they were talking about in these records didn't resonate in my soul. West Coast rap had gotten really big. So it was a lot about, you know, demeaning women kind of lyrics. And, you know, my daughter was a young teenager and I couldn't go home and say, hey, look at what mommy did today Uh, at work. mm -hmm. So I was having internal conflict. Yeah. And then also my body told me. I think, you know, I listened to my body. I got an ulcer. And it was just too much. And uh, it was Ray who said, you know. Dial it back, huh? Dial it back and you got to listen to your heart. What is it that you really want to do? Tell me What is it that you love? And I thought about it for a while, and I said, well, I love music. That's obvious. But I also love to travel. I wonder if I could travel and listen to music and make money. And that's also how Time Zone came about and how that name came about was I was picking up someone from the airport, and the then Continental Airlines had a billboard up, and it said, whatever time zone you're in, we're there with you. And I went, that's a great name. (laughs) And so that's how Time Zone came about.
0: And so, as I said in the introduction, it was the first and only U.S.-based African-American-owned company Uh doing all these wonderful
1: things in music. But also while I was doing that, I identified some of the things that Ray was doing that I thought could be monetized on. Because Ray is just such a great guy. I mean, he's my best friend, and I just admire him, and I've learned so many things from him. And I think one of the most important things that I've learned from him is integrity. Mm -hmm. And so one day I saw him pass off a session that he could not do because he was already booked. And when he hung up the phone, I said, so, you know, what do you get out of that? And he said, I don't understand. And I said, do you get paid for that? And he goes, no, I couldn't do it. So I passed it on to someone else who I know needed the job. And I said, that's great, but let's talk about this. Mm. What if you get a call? And you can't do it, and you pass it off to someone else, but you actually get paid for doing that. Like, that's a service. And his response was, I would never want to tax any of my musician brothers and sisters and take money away from them. And I said, that's not what I'm talking about. What if client A says, here's a gig for $100, and you say, well... I can't do it, but I know somebody who can do it for 110 A finder's fee kind of a thing? A finder's fee. And you commission the client. And that's how Chew Entertainment started, and we were so blessed by our first client being Alicia Keys.
0: Isn't that crazy? Pretty amazing. Wow. And that was, again, what year?
1: Um, we are now talking about... 1999, 2000, going into there. And uh, she was a young artist, had just gotten signed to J Records, and the person that signed her wanted to showcase her to the legendary Clive Davis. So Ray took on the uh, job of getting her ready, not only from her musical standpoint, but from an artist development standpoint. Because she, she was young then, as oh, she well. was extremely yeah. young. Yeah. She was a teenager, yeah. And she had a manager who did not have an office set up. Uh huh. So we ran her entire tour out of our office, and out of that, we started to get more and more clients like that. And then somebody from a corporate situation came along and said, "You know, we need entertainment for our gala. Can you do that?" So that's how Chew Entertainment began to grow. You know, we serviced for. Corporate clients that need entertainment. We produce events for corporate clients like like Dell. Mm-hmm. That's full service. But then also we work with the Apollo and, and J. Pack and most notably Carnegie Hall in bringing our own shows to places like this.
0: And it was, for all intents and purposes, just the two of you? Absolutely.
1: And two very faithful assistants.
0: Because it, it sounds to me like you could be dancing as fast as you can.
1: But be I have to put it to being a mother, you know? And we, yes, and we all we and yes yeah. women in, yeah. we balance our yeah. lives like that as daughters as wives. We're multitaskers. As, absolutely. So yeah, it comes I, I yeah, it's not that difficult of a thing, particularly since we do have Two amazing women, one who's been with us for 17 years. Her name is Janelle Grayson. She works primarily with Ray when he does the TV shows and dancing with the stars. She worked with him on American Idol. Ray just did Miss Universe. Like she's his right hand person always. Explain what he does. So, um, Ray is going into, I think, his eighth season with uh Dancing with the Stars and he's the band leader. He's the music director. So he's responsible for putting all of that music that you see every week together. All the way to the 167 music cues that he produced for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. Holy cow. And he just finished doing Miss Universe. So all the music there that you see There was a debacle with that, that. Did you hear? I saw. Like <laughs> we're going to blame it on the teleprompter. Yeah, exactly. Again. All right, that's just parenthetical. Yeah. But uh-huh. you know, he's been he's been very very blessed in his career in addition to doing scoring for for TV and film, to really, you know, people really see him as that music director for stellar events. Not too long ago, I watched the
0: documentary on HBO about the Apollo Theater. Yes, that and was, you saw his lovely Yes, face. I did. I did. Yes. So you have Chew Entertainment, which is alive and well, yes. but that's not the end of your no. business forays. So now...
1: You've got this power to inspire. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Yeah, power to inspire uh, was created, I think Ray and I were just sitting in gratitude one day and appreciation and just looking at our life and looking at how blessed we have been by the doors that were open for us, the doors of opportunity. And Ray uses this word an awful lot when he talks about, and the word is access. You can have as much talent as God could ever give you, but if you don't have access, to walk through certain doors, that talent it will, you'll just be the girl singing in the church choir. Exactly, exactly. Or the guy playing in the band at $50 a week. And um, Power to Inspire is our platform to work, to identify young people who want to be in the music business. Ray basically curates the kids who want to be creative, and I work with the kids that want to be behind scenes and in the business of music. And how do you come to these young people they through this They come the to us. Oh I God, mean, your yeah. reputation yeah. precedes they, you. They obviously. come to us, but also, you know, we live in New Jersey, and I have to go back to what Barry Gordy did at Motown. Ray's vision for the studio, which we have, which is RVMK. What does that stand studios, for? Studios. R is RV. Ray Vivian.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: right. K is Mark and Kathy Greer, who are our business partners okay. in this in this venture, and. Ray made a good point. He said Barry Gordy never went outside of Detroit for his talent. Every singer, songwriter, choreographer, artist development, band, everybody lived in Detroit. And Well, it was a hell of a place to mine uh, talent. Absolutely. And so is New Jersey. And that's not saying that huh. we are not going to look outside of our state, but we're very proud residents. Now for me, Uh of um, (laughs) you can hold your head up high now. Well, now (laughs) that I figured out how to get to the beach, there, I'm I'm pretty good because I grew up in the beach town of Far Rockaway, so the beach was everything for me, right? 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 But seriously, um, there's an awful lot of talent in New Jersey that comes from various different places, the music schools, the churches. And and so we have a young man by the name of Tyrell Bell, who is the music director at our church. We attend the Community Baptist Church in Englewood, New Jersey. And he's come on as our A&R artist development person, and he's been bringing incredible talent to us. And um, we are next year going to be focusing much, much more on the foundation and taking what we do. We take our show on the road. Ray and I, and primarily Ray, but Ray and I together, we go out and we speak to young people about what it is that we do and have been able to touch on a lot of kids' Mm. lives, and we are starting an internship program. One of the things that I was able to experience at Sony was the amazing internship program that Sony had that birthed all these incredible executives that are still in the industry now. That's really dried up, and a lot of it is because they don't really want to put money in investing in talent, because these kids want it so badly, they'll come and do it for free. You know, go get my coffee and Make gotcha. sure my Uber yeah. is called. Yes, but, yes. But um, that's not how we're going to do it. What we're doing is we are raising funds so that we can pay these young people directly and just give them Access to different opportunity. It also allows us to be hands on in that experience with them because we're the ones paying them. So in a way, it's
0: also paying it forward. Absolutely. And you're and you're cultivating the next generation. Absolutely. You have that foresight and that sense. I mean, yeah, you've been there and done that. And B,
1: I mean, it's what works for you as well. Sure, sure. I mean, you know, and also these are people who, when we identify them. They now are our people. They're our tribe, and I've had interns and assistants during my career who now I call on because I need a song cleared, or we need a younger band unit for a new artist that's that's coming out. You know, we go back to all of these people who we have been in touch with right. and, as mentors. Uh, you burn so, no bridges, absolutely. I mean, thank God for them. Yeah, you know, really, they, they are. What's keep They keep us relevant.
0: I also want to touch upon the fact that how our paths crossed was over this movie called Two Beats, One Soul mm. about um, Afro-Caribbean music. Talk about how you wound up in
1: Cuba. Right. Well, I went to Cuba first in 1999, and it was part of a program called Music Bridges. And a lovely man, Alan Roy Scott, who never gets enough credit— who's based in LA, had done several of these. He did U.S. and Ireland. And I can't remember some of the other countries he did. But when I found out about Cuba, I actually went and found an artist that I was working with. I was at Time Zone at this time. And one of my clients, a young kid, a rapper who had sold a lot of records outside the U.S., I grabbed him, got permission from his mother because he was 16 to take him to Cuba. And we went for this program. And that's when I just could not believe what I saw. I was like time had stopped. Isn't that amazing? I know. I was in
0: Cuba, too, two years after you. Unbelievable. And it was like pulling a curtain back. Absolutely. Uh, yes, it's
1: jaw-dropping. And still in the 50s and 60s. Yes, and crazy. The, but the things that people see are the cars and are the colors and the women with the cigars and all that. But like you just said, when you pull back and you see these people who are just so— rich with their culture and their religion and their music and, and their love for people. And who are not bitter. And who are not bitter. In spite of, you know, this in tough road to hoe, you Absolutely, know? Absolutely. In spite of it all. And uh, so that seed was planted at me in 1999. And then in 2017, I think Ray and I decided that we wanted to do a project together. And I said, you know what? If we do something together let's do it in Cuba. I I definitely have, I I get really excited about things that seemingly are beyond my Mm -hmm. reach. Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's what really gets me excited is the challenge. And he looked at me like I was crazy and he was like, you realize that we can't just go down there and make a record. We're going to have to go on a fact-finding mission and learn a lot, particularly for him as a musician because he always knew of Cuban music and salsa and and all that, different iterations of Afro-Cuban music, but had never been to Cuba. So we took a trip. Just the two of you? Just the two of us. And we were introduced by a lovely man, one of our executive producers, Antonio Martinez, who is the only non-Cuban that owns a Cuban music company sanctioned by the Cuban government. Antonio is part Spanish from Spain and part German. And he's got a company called Indirecto. And Antonio used to be the publicist for the Buena Vista Social Club. So ah, there's a name big, from the right? past. Uh-huh. And so he's Cuba, 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 Cuba. And he opened the door to us to these amazing singers and songwriters and musicians. And Ray spent a lot of time with a gentleman by the name of Menelito Simonet, who is Ray's equivalent in Cuba. Okay. You know, top music director, piano player as well. And Ray spent time understanding what that meant musically. And I spent time more so looking at logistics and how we were going to do this in a country where there were no ATMs, no yeah. credit cards. All the cash that you went down with is what you were going to do. with. No Ubers, no Lyfts. Like, how are we going to make this happen? Right. And, by the way, we should document this. So how do we incorporate a film company with musicians and we came back and we, we just sort of we put together a blueprint on who would be the artists that we wanted to work with, who were gonna be the producers, what the record would look like, and we went down there and within two weeks Ray created our record Two Beats One Soul, and we have an accompanying documentary of the same name. So the finding
0: the talent to highlight was not an onerous task. No, I
1: think the biggest task for Ray was we had a, literally a two-week window. Mm-hmm. We had two studios going on at the same time. And how was he going to come back with this body of work, which is distributed through Sony Latin, that was going to be stellar to what he is used to producing? Because even things like the equipment down there is probably about, I would say, about 10 years At behind. least, yeah. And we couldn't bring equipment into the country. So we had to work with what we had. And... Um, not to say that they their engineers were top-notch and, you know, just Cuban musicians. Cuba takes such pride when a kid comes home to their parent and says, I'm going to be a musician. They're like, yes, wow. And their government supports them. They can go to music school for free. Their instruments are provided for free. Unlike here, you know, a kid goes to their parent and says, I want to be a musician. They go, well, go to college and, you know, what's your B plan? That and chance. then you can sit yeah. in a play, you know, yeah. on the corner and play your guitar. Yeah, right. You feel like it. So just the whole energy around music in Cuba, just like in Jamaica, was just coming out of people's pores. It was everywhere. So that was that was the easy part, the musical part. The logistical part was was a big challenge.
0: And also, if I remember from the film, there was the issue of not being able to bring some of these performers. The out of Cuba. Yeah. Yeah.
1: After we had uh, finished the record and we came back and Ray mixed it and mastered it and we put the record out, we said it would be a great idea to showcase this. And we wanted to expose some of the young talent that we had discovered in the process. This brother team, the Rodriguez brothers, who are just awesome singers, songwriters, and a, a young woman by the name of Milagros who sang on the record. You know, there was a lot of young talent there that we wanted to expose in the U.S., and right when we scheduled our showcases, we had one in LA and one in New York, the hurricane came <laughs> and totally <laughs> demolished Cuba, shut down yeah, everything. Oh, my God, yeah. And then the sonic attacks came and shut down the embassy. No embassy, no visas, no visas, no Cubans. Right. So right. we um, unfortunately could the not. The stars bring were unaligned for were you. They were very unaligned. And we were able to do the show. They gifted us beautiful video that we showed in both cities of of uh, them. They all got together in a studio and just said, we wish you could be there. And they sang a little bit. So it was very endearing. It was, a, it was a lovely moment. And then Ray and I looked at each other and said, well, if we can't bring Cuba to the U.S., then we need to go down to Cuba and do and show this project. And we had the opportunity to do the Havana Jazz Festival. Oh, how cool. Which we did in the in, uh, top of 2018. I think it was January. Yeah, 2018. Uh And we did every single song on the record. There are 13 songs on the record. And Ray reproduced all of that. We brought the U.S. artists that we had brought down originally to do the the record. They came down. We had a complete orchestra in the background. And we took over the opening night of the Jazz Festival. But two hours before... We were supposed to open the doors, the power in the entire neighborhood <laughs> went out, which you saw in the documentary. Right. right. And with no and comes as no surprise. Oh my yeah. goodness. And with no idea when it was gonna come back. It wasn't even the power in the in the place. It wasn't like the generator went out. Yeah. Yeah. The entire neighborhood went black. Right. And you sort of, you know, we learned after going there five times, like you had to go with the flow. This was either going to happen or it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And as God divinely (laughs) intervened, yeah, uh and and we were able to do the show. It was wonderful to watch the documentary for
0: me because I had such fond memories of being. um, I went with my son and another young man, and uh, it was quite an experience. And my son is fluent in Spanish, and I said to him, Mm -hmm. "I pay." you said you and and <laughs> we met and we got we stayed in private homes yeah paladaros yeah, i at believe Polydrap, it was oh that's it was right. amazing so vivian yes. we're running out of time but i want to ask you what's in the future for you and ray or you and or ray you know what's happening okay. tomorrow what's happening tomorrow
1: well um What's your focus? We, I think we have a, a lot of things that we're focusing what on. What a surprise, um, Vivian. They're stating the obvious. <laughs> yeah. You know, Ray is doing more uh, music for film and TV, and that's really his passion is orchestrating, and, and it's just so wonderful to see him grow. You know, uh, people tell us, you know, at a certain point in your life, you know, you should have a retirement plan, and you should have done everything you want to do. Ray and I are dreamers. And we wake up every day just thinking about what else can we do or how can we do it differently or how can we do... Great to have found your soulmate like that. Oh, absolutely. Or how can we do what we already do even better? Yeah. So um, I see Ray's future absolutely still being one of the leading, you know, band leaders in in America and in the world, um, but also doing doing that. You know, Ray has a lot of Quincy Jones in him. Mm. And I, I see that for him, for us together. Yeah. Absolutely. Our foundation and our studio and creating opportunities for kids you know one of our dreams for that is to, for our internship program to be global so that we can bring a kid from Johannesburg to come for the summer and live with a family in New York and take somebody from LA to go live with a family in in Tokyo or, or any wow. place in the world uh-huh. because once i got my passport my entire world changed i encourage kids who are in our program get a passport it is your your gateway to the world and you get to see people and different cultures and different ways of life and it just makes you grow and expand in who you are as your own person. So our internship program at Power to Inspire is very important to us together. We do a show Every other year, Carnegie Hall Call A Night of Inspiration. And on December 12, 2020, it will be our fourth time doing it where we bring secular and non-secular artists together on the stage of Carnegie Hall. What do you mean by that? So artists that are in... R and B and classical and pop along with gospel and inspiration. Ah, okay. Artists. Okay. They come together on the stage. Ray conducts a 64 piece orchestra. Holy cow. Yeah. Our pastor uh is our music director for our 150 voice mass choir. Holy shit. And so Whoa. it's it's a lot. Just to look out in the audience and see the connection. And I mean to see people from every different demographic that you can imagine be touched by this music. And Ray has a very Interesting way of doing unique pairings. We put together the gospel legend Shirley Caesar along with a classical violinist from Italy named Alain Cesare. They had never met before, but when we saw what happened in rehearsal, we knew that that was going to translate because magic was uh, because magic was made. And because, as cliche as it sounds, music is the universal language. We saw that in Cuba. We went to Cuba. We didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak English. Everybody spoke music. Yes, and. So one of the things we're looking to do in the future is to take our Night of Inspirations around the world. And we are looking at 2021 in Jerusalem, which is going to be just, I get goosebumps just even thinking about that. And we did a small version of that recently at the Park Avenue Synagogue in Manhattan with the cantor Ozzy Schwartz, who has performed with us at two other Nights of Inspiration. And we had a gospel choir. We had Ozzy Schwartz. Ray was there putting it all together. And Valerie Simpson was our guest artist and How it fabulous. streamed and we had people in Israel who were listening to the cantor sing in Hebrew with a gospel choir backing him up crazy and it's just you know it's it's what we gotta do we live in a crazy time right now um, Sandy and this yes, music
0: heals the savage it beast does. it does it does
1: and in a world where you know we're being asked to be divided where music <laughs> is is gonna bring it back together so we're excited about doing more nights of inspiration around the world and then for me personally There's a part of me that a lot of people don't know about. I don't talk a lot about it, but um, I've gotten to the point where I am ready to talk about it. I'm very excited. Is that I am a certified end-of-life doula. And that's a term that a lot of people don't know. Um, very few people even know what a doula is. And a doula— They think about that in childbirth. It, yes, a doula helps the midwife, assistant midwife during childbirth. And an end-of-life doula is someone who uh, assists someone who's transitioning and is a support to the family. It's something that I've known since I was a little girl that I had a gift of, never was fearful of death always ended up being somewhat the last person that somebody saw before they went on. And it's just something that just naturally comes to me. So I volunteer at a hospice, a private hospice in New Jersey. Villa Marie Claire. Villa Marie Claire. Yeah, you know about that. Did you know that that's the only freestanding hospice in all of New Jersey? Well, to get very, very personal, my husband spent time there. Really? Mm-hmm. They see me as such a gift to them. It is such a gift to me. There's 20 beds, Mm -hmm. and I get to play a part in these patients' lives that is life-changing to me, whether I spend a couple of weeks with them or a couple of hours because it just happens so fast. And I have a bigger vision that there need to be places where people can go in their end days that are full of joy. And they need people forget about the family that's left behind. And even the people who work in these places who are caregivers, who's taking care of them? They're experiencing pain and sorrow and death and anger and fear and all these different emotions. And then they have to go home and be right for their families. Right. So switching gears, kind of. Switching gears. So I take a very holistic approach in how I I doula. And it's one of the most gratifying things that I do. I've been blessed to do a lot of things and uh, to have a husband who understands, oh, you're going to go and sit and be with people who are going to die. And I have a ritual that I do before I come back in my home and I journal a lot. And it has just helped me grow as a person. It's made me kinder. You take my breath away. Yeah. You really, really
0: do. And um, I would use the word to describe you as an inspiration. Oh, you thank are. You. You're just. How can I not love what I do when I meet women like you and who are open and honest and you know just tell who you are. I feel blessed. Well, I really do. We are
1: blessed. We as women are blessed to have someone like you that gives us a platform so that our stories are out there. Thank you so much. Oh, it's it's the biggest labor
0: of love, yeah. Vivian Shu. How's this? I love you. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: rhymes. I like
0: that. I can't sing it, but. Um, thank you so much for sharing oh, who you, you are. It thank was you. just nothing short of wonderful. And you'll come back. Absolutely. Okay? The door is always open for you because clearly you got a lot of stuff that you guys do. And this is just the beginning for us. I bet it is. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.